0: Gus Hussain worries about data, everyone's data. As executive director of Privacy International, Gus has a long history of fighting to protect people's data from
1: exploitation by companies and governments. When uh, the Bush administration introduced the U.S. visit system, we were the only organization on the planet that opposed it, saying, this is ridiculous, you shouldn't be fingerprinting kids coming to visit people in the U.S. But Americans didn't really care, Although it was funny because at that time um, the Brazilians were a little bit um, rebellious and uh, they decided to retaliate against Americans by fingerprinting all American visitors. And uh, Colin Powell was Secretary of State at the time and he was on his way to Brazil. And when he was asked about that, he said he was going to make his, dispe- his displeasure clear to the Brazilians that that was not a good practice. He couldn't even imagine that this was standard US policy. And I was working at the time, campaigning against that system and the Japanese government had also introduced its equivalent system. And the EU was very much on our side, saying, no, you should not be collecting data on, uh, on EU citizens who are just visiting the US. And the data collected in the US visit system, the fingerprint data is kept for 100 years. Welcome back to
2: another episode of the Plutopia News Network podcast. I'm John Lebkowski. And uh, my partners in crime there are Scoop Sweeney and Wendy Grossman, and today we're going to be interviewing Gus Hussain, who is the Executive Director of Privacy International, which is a London-based charity that works across the world to protect people and their data from exploitation by governments and companies. I'm not sure which is worse. He's worked at the Intersection of Tech and Human Rights for over 25 years and will have a lot to say, I'm sure. Welcome, Gus.
1: Thank you for having me.
3: Do you wanna do you wanna give us an idea of what you see as the trajectory of privacy over the last 25 years? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, in, in a couple of sentences, right? No, but I mean <sighs> I mean the, the 25 words or
2: less. I mean, <laughs>
3: I mean there are certain things you look at you know that 25 years ago we were more concerned about governments and less concerned there weren't giant technology companies and if there were it was microsoft and ibm um you know i mean and the sense in which we we didn't quite have such rapacious companies trying to make everything to their to to suit them so i mean there. you know you know, Maybe it's
1: the, it's the Christmas season, which is why I'm a little bit more optimistic than that. Because when I got into this in the mid-90s, you had, yeah, you didn't have Google, um, but you had AT&T. You had telephone companies getting into bed with governments all the time, and you had a complete lack of clarity what was going on. The NSA was still unknown to most people as the National Security Agency, the British equivalent you couldn't even speak about and versus and today now i
3: have today i have one of their mugs on my table <laughs>
1: exactly exactly at the at PI's christmas party for um for secret Santa, one of the gifts going around was gchq's annual puzzle book um it's the, the ball has moved so much further and just comparing talking about privacy in the 1990s, when people asked what you did for a living, if you mentioned you worked on privacy, they'd have no idea what you're doing. And now it's it's so much more advanced, so much more sophisticated, so much more exciting and optimistic. You can't go through the news any given day without running into stories about our, our issues. Whereas in the 1990s, it was only occasionally. And it was usually about caller ID. So I think it's been a fantastic trajectory um you know i think fun.
3: i think you have a point there because when i think about it it's a long time since i had to explain to somebody that everybody has secrets and you know my usual thing was if they say well i have nothing to hide you'd sort of say well great do you want to get your bank statements on the backs of postcards
1: yeah, yeah. i haven't had that question for a very long time and it's it's wonderful to not get that question because i never had a good answer i was thinking about
2: something um that was an issue and something we really discussed quite a bit in uh, I guess mid to late 90s we started talking about how people should have ownership of their own data and there was actually the uh, project for that called platform for privacy preferences or p3p uh, which is obsolete now but uh, for a while they worked on it and the idea was that you could store your privacy preferences in the browser and and whoever you connected with would read those preferences and act accordingly. And I'm just kind of wondering whether people are still thinking about, is it still a, a thought anywhere that I should own my own data and that I should be able to bargain with my own data?
1: Every now and then that idea reemerges with... Um another company that has that idea of creating this, like this, this highly secure stash that you're in complete control of, that you can trade uh, and share accordingly. It's uh, there, there are two obstacles to it. First, I guess there's the human rights framework, which is if you treat data as property, that means you can actually sell it. That means it can be traded once you've sold it and you've lost control of it actually. Um, whereas the human rights framework says no matter where your data is and who has possession of it is still yours, um, in the sense that you still have the right over that data. Um, and I guess the, the second reason it never quite takes off is because it's about the data you think you have control over. Oh, it's your, your health data. So when you go and get a test and you store that data in a store, but actually The health provider has a copy of that data and they're actually in control of that data and they're sharing it as they see fit. And if it was a company for profit or insurance company, and then all of a sudden, the our idea of what is ours and what's under our control and what's under our possession, we quickly realize that actually very little of it is under our control and very little of it is under our possession. So it's impossible to actually have this wonderful stash put somewhere very secure that you're in control of when in reality. Wendy's giving away my data all the time. Um and on even on this call my data is flowing all over the place beyond the control of any of us. That's that's the modern reality unfortunately.
3: Do you th- do you think do you see personal data stores as kind of the latest iteration of that particular des- desire to own data and, and control it?
1: That's exactly what I see it as. Yeah, it it and it's I think at the at the heart of it is a good intent which is you should be in control. You really should be able to say when and how and where your data goes. And it's a sad statement that you don't have that control. But it's also, it's, it's the reality of the world. that you never really had that level of control. It's, it's kind of like when people in Britain woke up and said, oh, my God, we have to get out of the EU. We got to take back control. They never had control to begin with. And that's the, the control is the myth. What you want is a, and this sounds a little too status, but you want a governance framework. You want the idea that your data can be anywhere, but you still have an element of, of uh, you have rights over it still. Mm.
3: You know, one of the things that's always struck me as the fundamental problem that computers have brought is that in the physical media, in the physical era, in the analog era, um, what was expensive was making copies and distributing data and in this era what's expensive is curating data and deleting things and selecting data and and that is a fundamental reversal that i think it's really hard to get past
1: absolutely and i, and I actually wonder with with llms um what old and garbage data means to those systems that are constantly learning um, it, it is and Actually, is it if you think about what why everybody's excited about LLMs and as a replacement to Google is that when you now do a Google search, you get so much garbage, it's actually not useful to you as much as it used to be. And so, this era of, as you say, ever c- accumulating data and the difficulty of actually curating it has led to this moment.
3: Personally, I divorced Google in 2010, but I know what you mean. Yeah.
1: <laughs>
3: uh. DuckDuckGo does is so far has not decided to adopt AI.
1: Yeah, although they're run by like they're they're essentially uh, Bing, um, and Bing's integration with uh, ChatGPT is quite a thing to watch.
3: Yeah, I'm actually in the market for a new search engine, um, but that's a that's not a privacy issue. So no. <laughs> it's
2: it, 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 <laughs> very
1: meta to be searching for a privacy. search engine. <laughs> Searching for a search into in all the wrong places.
2: before we started this talk, I, I actually asked one of the, I think it was Bard, to feed me a set of questions as a backup. And they were pretty good questions, uh, and I've tried that before. They're never, they're never really right. They're a little bit too general. They're not really very useful as questions. But they are pretty useful as prep, you know, as just kind of yes. getting you to think about the things that you're going to want to talk about. Yeah, so we were testing it out at, at, the, uh,
1: at the PI office. We were testing it out a few months ago. About uh, We asked uh, ChatGPT to generate a press release for uh, what would Privacy International say about the um, tracking of um, asylum seekers. And, of course, Wendy, the journalist, would yell at me for even talking about it press release because press releases are useless, but getting my colleagues to write a good press release is hard.
3: They're uh, not always useless.
1: The AI wrote a really good press release. It was well formatted. It was succinct. Um, it was interesting. And it had our voice, you know, it really captured the way that we would have said things. You know, one of the big problems
0: uh, I hear about AI is it's a, a tool of, uh, expropriating other people's work with no credit and no compensation, you know, especially to artists, performers, you know, famous folks suddenly find themselves sucked up into the, uh, AI and distributed in a totally inappropriate manner. You're seeing already in our elections, uh, phony, uh. Endorsements by famous folk who didn't do the endorsement—how, how in the world can we uh, cope with that? And you know, not do away with AI, but uh, it, it it needs some controls of some sort.
1: Yeah, that, that's that's a really interesting example. We did a um, we have our own podcast, and we did a whole edition based on um that story that came out of arizona if i recall correctly about a mother getting a phone call from her daughter saying she was kidnapped but basically it was all ai generated based on very little amount of voice data and uh how extraordinary that is and the idea that you you have any control over your voice or your face or any any of your content that go- once it goes into the the ai systems yeah it's all over but The other side of it, there's an interest in making sure you are part of that. It's uh, like um, I got approached by a number of uh, UK-based human rights organizations, and they were asking, you know, how are you navigating the AI in the workplace kind of situation? And um, they, they were all talking about banning it, whereas I was taking the approach that we shouldn't be using it. We shouldn't be drafting press releases using AI, but we should make sure that we're feeding them. We're making sure that when somebody asks a question, what is uh, you know what are the issues with facial recognition in at protests? we want to make sure our content is what's feeding the answer rather than just law enforcement uh, content feeding the answer so if 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 it is the arbiter of what is fact and what is truth going for, we need to make sure the right things get in there
2: what What would be the difference between the way you would answer that question and the way law enforcement would answer it? What are you trying to? I would
1: hope it'd be very similar, but uh, we we tend to dig beneath the surface a little bit more about whether or not this technology works, whether or not this technology has a legal basis, whether or not this technology uh, should have been created in the first place. So, like for instance, we uh, Privacy International took one of the first legal cases against uh, a facial recognition company called Clearview AI. We filed uh, complaints in five jurisdictions across Europe, including the UK, Italy, uh, and France. And we got tens of millions of euros of fines against the company because the company was scraping photos from social media. And the idea that they should be allowed to scrape uh, photos from social media to then build a system that they then provide access to law enforcement is unacceptable. But a law enforcement description of it would be: we use this technology to only detect criminals, and it's only used in very specific circumstances. Our answer is that technology shouldn't exist in the first place. And fortunately, um, the law is on our side.
2: That kind of reminds me. I was when I was researching Privacy International uh, before uh, before the uh, podcast. I uh, realized that. It, it's kind of there's some similarities to the Electronic Frontier Foundation, yeah. and when the Electronic Frontier Foundation was founded, it was primarily because they realized that they're that people who make policy and people who enforce policy or do law enforcement were not going to understand the technologies at all. And they were going to make bad policy. They're going to do a bad job of law enforcement because of that lack of understanding. So that's really what EFF was founded for. Yeah, I it sounds your, like private international does some of that.
1: Yeah, I loved your your storytelling, about the 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 history of everything, and then the inclusion of the EFF story because uh, PI was founded at the exact same time as EFF. We were in 1990 as well, where EFF came out of questions around copyright and government surveillance in the form of like Fourth Amendment and updating and the Fourth Amendment
3: hacking. The and hacking,
1: too. Um, PI came out of uh, the, the pushback against government ID systems. The idea that uh, whether it was first in Australia, the idea that the government could issue an ID card. But then what was interesting was to see how the idea of issuing new ID cards based on new databases started traveling around uh the, the Pacific region, so I went to New Zealand, went to Thailand, and we were finding the companies were the ones spreading the idea. And so that's where, where PI got in slightly differently to EFF, where um, we, from the earliest of stages, we were I, identifying that companies and government were the threats to privacy and uh going to how you opened this entire conversation which is worse governments or companies actually the worst is when they work together the collusion um and i think that's where pi's story um has remained consistent over all these years whereas eff has has, has you know it had its, its washington moment and now it has it, its current phase and it's more uh people-oriented uh, P.I. is always stuck to this line of governments and companies can be um, problematic and, and they're even worse when they're brought together.
2: Yeah, they're kind of like a law firm now, too. They, they actually yeah. have lawyers who, who argue cases. But, yeah, uh, that's that's but happening yeah, in our true. sector
1: a lot. Um, and I have to constantly resist our own lawyers. And we have a lot of lawyers um, there. It, it basically just became easier at one point to take a legal case than to fight for public opinion, to, than to fight in legislatures. I remember in one country, we were trying to fight against a, a law that was going through its parliament. And we were trying to enlist the help of the, of the main human rights organization in the country. And they couldn't care less because they knew they would have more fun litigating the, the law after it become law rather than trying to stop it. And that's, it seems to be a very strong temptation now within the human rights community and the civil liberties community and the tech rights community, just to yeah get the lawyers busy.
2: Well, actually trying to get legislation and actually lobbying, that's sort of like taking on a very dirty plumbing job, isn't it? You know, it's like you kind of have to wade into the cesspool and try to figure out a way to, to,
1: uh, to maneuver Yeah. Well, that's, that's, if if you take democracy seriously, that's what you got to do. It's, it's, it's horrible. It's long, it's painful. It's that whole sausage analogy is entirely accurate. You really don't want to see it up close, but if that's, that's where you have the, the, the real debate, that's where you have the, the conflict of ideas. The, the problem with once you, like, and don't get me wrong, like we, we have won. Many cases in courts. I'm very proud of all the legal cases we've taken, but it is based on this huge assumption that governments will pay attention to what a court says, and they do not. The number of cases we've won where we're still waiting for implementation, but at least you have yeah, this moment where that you can more wave in the US now and say we won. Well, then the same in the U.S., um, is, that yeah.
3: something, is that something that's getting worse in the UK? I mean, it seems to me like 25, 30 years ago when I was first living here, people did, governments actually did listen more, you know, in public consultations, in decisions of courts, in demonstrations. I mean, you know, there's, there's this, I, been this trend. I wonder. It seems to me like in the last 30 years, there's been a distinct trend towards just ignoring what everybody says.
1: Yeah. I. I... I, I, I agree. I wonder, though, if it's because we've been paying attention to the courts for the last 30 years. Uh, and it's not just the UK. It's like we, um, there's a policy called data retention, which was actually a Bush administration idea, which was to force telephone companies and ISPs to retain the da- the transactional data, the metadata of everybody's usage. Um, at and this, did this all the time. Um, and there was no legal requirement for them to stop doing so. But uh, any country that has data protection law, there's a requirement that once data is no longer required, it has to be deleted. Um, after 9-11, the Bush administration, well, Bush wrote a letter to EU government saying, please introduce data retention laws in order to fight terrorism. And so governments introduced these laws. And we took cases over you know, a uh, 13-year period where every time we took a case on data retention to any court, we would win. But we'd have to take it back again and again and again. And there's still data retention across the European Union. Well, it's extraordinary how they just ignore or they, they, they play a longer game than we can. And we have we don't have a budget for this type of stuff. Well, in this
0: country, in, in, the, in the U.S., the courts have taken a nasty turn because, I mean, you have a lot of uh, good jurists out there who are making, you know, reasoned, uh, decisions. And we have a Supreme court that, uh, has abandoned reason in favor of, you know, right-wing politics. And that's exactly what's happened. And so it's uh, gotten to the point where you really can't rely upon the courts because, you know, you may get a few good decisions, but in the end it can go horribly wrong. Do you see that happening in other countries or are we kind of the lone ranger of bad decisions?
1: No, um, it's it, it's indeed happening. And even when a decision... I'm not a lawyer. Uh, I just play one at work um, because I employ a lot of lawyers. And they they don't plan well enough for what happens when a court goes wrong. And deference to the executive, is it plagues every judiciary, every single one of them, particularly on the issues that we care about. You know, the moment national security is involved, often courts will say they have no jurisdiction whatsoever. And it takes an extraordinarily brave and often liberal uh, judge to say, we can even hear this case. And so, yeah, I uh, while the, the, the Supreme Court in the US has been, definitely turning on issues of social and economic rights for sure Um, on the issues of national security and terrorism courts around the world have been relatively hard let's say I don't want to be mean because we have to have to go before them and hope they listen to us well it is I mean it's kind of a scary time
2: we the other problem that we have here is that we have uh we have people who increasingly feel that they can just ignore the laws they're just gonna like you know blow the laws off and there was actually there was a poll recently that showed a a significant number of people who believe that a leader thinking of Trump of course should should ignore laws uh, you know and kind of like what it is is that it's a problem with democracy people i mean you talk about how messy democracy is people don't want the mess of democracy so they want to just put somebody there who will make decisions and enforce the decisions themselves and the hell with the laws and i'm afraid that that's becoming pretty widespread
1: right, what are you seeing well it, it's it's all linked to the fact that things are getting so much more damn complicated now And that's why this idea of take back control or um or you know government should get out of the way because it was easier back then or red tape is interfering with everything um yeah i i I get all of those sentiments equally though the very people who claim the red tape is getting in the way they're the ones interested in putting more red tape in to defend what it is they want. And again, I work in the area of national security and anti-terrorism or back during the the COVID pandemic, I worked on, well, those issues and governments want, you know, it's, it's ideological free that governments just want Um, and they will use any political uh, punchline or, 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 uh, any political line they can to get what they want. So yeah, they'll, they'll pull out a Trumpian, uh, logic at one moment in time, and then try to say that it's, it's the great duty of the state to protect its people. It's, uh, it's cynical. It's what it is, but it actually goes back to saying, you were saying just before, like we took a case, uh, about, uh, six years ago, it took four years to get through the courts, uh, in the UK, about whether or not uh, MI5, which is the domestic intelligence agency in Britain, which you know, to me as an American, the thought that there's a domestic intelligence agency in a country kind of blows one's mind. But MI5 was ignoring legal safeguards, and they were also uh, telling the it's their own bosses in government that they were ignoring legal safeguards, and the the court had to had to eventually agree with us that, yes, MI5 um, had actually not been candid enough with the court, was ignoring legal safeguards. And we thought, OK, that's great. We won. Um, and the next day, the boss within the government, the equivalent of the attorney general, uh, just said, yeah, well, they're sorry, but let's move on. You know, and that's that's no wonder why people are cynical. It, it's We've gotten lazy when it comes to controlling the executive power of the state. And maybe for a moment there, with Trump or the post-Trump moment, you think America would, you know, would push back against the Cheney view of the world, which is you need a strong executive. We must have rules around our our, our strong leaders because it, we should be afraid of the day that people want strong leaders who can get away with it. But we haven't done that yet. Our own
0: version of MI five, uh, the FBI, has a, you know pretty checkered history of ignoring the, the boundaries and the laws governing what it can and can't do. So it's not like uh, you guys were experiencing something totally unique. Yeah, it's It's that temptation you, when you have a lot of power to go in and just use it uh, no matter what. And uh, uh, you, you see that going in kind of waves, you'll, you'll get some uh, cleanups done, you know, when it gets totally uh, out of control they have to clean up their house and and then they slowly creep back into the bad practices
1: it's like the church commission 1970s and then the Snowden moment uh in the early uh, 2010s but then they'll disappear back in uh into the darkness and, and try to get away with it all over again absolutely and that's that's why it's particularly hard to do what we do because we have to we can't wait every 30 years for somebody to come forward and say oh you know this shit be bad. These people be up to no good. Uh, we have to presume that that's the case and uh, keep on digging. But courts will time and again say, oh, we have no jurisdiction here. We can't look into an intelligence agency that belongs. And under UK law, the intelligence agency is under the purview, essentially, of the king and the powers of the king.
3: You know, years ago, the... Americans may not necessarily be familiar with Yes Minister and Yes Prime Minister but uh, they were it was a sitcom that actually explained to Britain how their government worked it it sort of focused on the war between the civil service and the ever changing ministers in charge and the guy who wrote it was a guy named Anton well one of the two writers was Anthony Jay who wrote a book called Management and Machiavelli. And the reason the show is so enduringly accurate is that he had a very deep understanding of how large organizations work. He died about 10 years ago, and shortly before that, uh, one of our friends uh, introduced me to him because he regarded him as a career mentor. This was William Heath. And, um, And I asked him, at the time, I think the big question was, I forget what it was we were trying to defeat at the time. But I remember asking him, you know, do we stand a chance? And he basically said, no. Um, Large organizations always want as much, you know, to to them, information is power. They always want as much of it as they can get. And they are never going to cede any of it, you know. And um, it was kind of depressing to hear. But, you know, I I would imagine that he was absolutely right. I mean, he knew he he did understand how those things work.
1: Yeah, just bringing that example to a story I read just last week about how the FBI and it might be other police forces in the U.S. have access to Israeli intelligence. So um, who the Israeli government's identifying as problematic is shared in bulk with U.S. authorities. And so U.S. authorities now have this the, the, a list of names generated by a foreign government under reasons that can never quite be understood sufficiently with the necessary nuance of the context, and is going to be used in domestic policing here. And that's what we found in in the Snowden moment. It wasn't just that the U.S. government was getting away with collecting vast amounts of data or the U.K. government was getting away with collecting vast amounts of data. It was that they were sharing this data en masse with each other and with other governments around the world. And so you get to the point where not only are government's collecting huge amounts, but they're just in this business of constantly trading on this data. So yeah, going back to John's earlier point, I wish there was a company I could sign up with that would take possession of my data and make sure that only I have control over it. But you're not going to stop the Israelis, you're not going to stop the Russians, you're not going to stop the Australians, and the constant flow of uh, information amongst them that will feed airline security systems will feed protest surveillance systems in, in city squares and, you know, will feed employment decisions at some point.
3: Yeah. And there was a story today. There was a story today that the EU is going to start requiring fingerprints and facial scans from British people traveling to the EU next year. And I think that's going to be a real shock to a lot of the British people. I don't think I don't think anybody's expecting is prepared for that.
1: Well, I hope the Americans are shocked by it. this. Is, this is what pisses me off. When uh, the Bush administration introduced the US visit system, we were the only organization on the planet that opposed it, saying, This is ridiculous. You shouldn't be fingerprinting kids coming to visit people in the US. But Americans didn't really care. Although it was funny because at that time, um, the Brazilians were a little bit um, rebellious and uh, they decided to retaliate against Americans by fingerprinting all American visitors. And uh, Colin that. Powell was secretary of state at the time and he was on his way to Brazil. And when he was asked about that, he said he was gonna make his dispe- his displeasure clear to the Brazilians that that was not a good practice. He, didn't, um, he couldn't even imagine that this was standard US policy. And I was working at the time campaigning against that system and the japanese government had also introduced its equivalent system and the eu was very much on our side saying no you should not be collecting data on uh, on eu citizens who are just visiting the u.s and the data collected in the u.s visit system the fingerprint data is kept for 100 years and it's like why is a 13 year old being fingerprinted at the border and having her data kept for 100 years it's because it's the fbi standards on collection of uh uh, fingerprints, so yeah, the EU started to do it 20 years later because it's taken them a long time to first get over their revulsion and then realize that they could have fun collecting data as well, passing the law, and then there's about seven years late because building the tech is actually quite hard and it's going to fail. Do
2: we have a wi- do we have a widespread, I uh, like global, clearly defined set of rights around information? I mean, do we know what rights we should be trying to protect globally with a high degree of clear, clarity, and how to do that?
1: Yes, yes, and we've 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 known it since the nineteen seventies, and it was actually developed by the U.S. government. Um, uh, it was HHS actually that developed these the, these principles that everybody should. Have the ability to have some control over their data, and other governments, when they when they saw this great U.S. government report on how to respond to the rise of databases, other governments said, "Okay, fine, we're going to put that in the law." And the Germans were the first, then the French, and then the English, and then before you knew it, every EU country had to have this law, what we call data protection law. And now it's over 120 countries across the world. Um, a lot of African countries, almost all of Asia. India just finally got its state of protection law last month. So billions of people are protected to some degree under law. The only one that is missing from that list, even China, yeah. The only one missing from that list is the U.S. And it's because for the last 30 years, there's been essentially congressional impasse at the same time as the rise of silicon valley companies who have made money off collecting data so it is a huge resistance to giving americans this very same rights that everybody else on the planet practically has data is the new oil as they say
0: the u.s government has a good history of sanctioning all the russian oligarchs but as a very poor uh, track record when it comes to their own oligarchs the holy trinity of zuckerberg bezos and musk they seem to be able to get away with what doing whatever they feel like with their data our data anybody's data and uh i don't see there being any attempt to slow that down
1: yeah like sorry wendy go ahead
3: no i was just gonna say musk isn't particularly a data hog is he though I mean, it's, it's more Amazon, you know, as you say, Amazon, but also all these shadowy companies behind the scenes that most people don't even know exist.
1: Yeah, it's the data brokers, like the experience uh, of the world, well, of America, who are the ones quietly collecting all this data and then selling it onwards. But uh, yeah, Zuckerberg certainly had his, had his moment, the, the Cambridge Analytica moment that finally caught up and bit him. When, because when in 2013 he said that, on top of the fact he said that privacy is a, a old concept and everybody's moved on, um, he also created this social layer essentially saying that data accumulated on Facebook should be just accessible to other companies. And at the time, everybody thought, well, isn't he clever? Because he was going through this hero moment, the same hero moment that that uh, musk went through up until a couple of years ago and now we're seeing it with sam sam altman for some reason and i'm not, i'm not sure it's just americans that suffer from this disease but needing to believe that there's these great industrialists who 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 know best because they're terribly bright and terribly white and terribly educated um you know it's 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 a sickness And we're repeating it time and again. Like I don't know if the same thing happened to you, but many journalists lost their Thanksgiving this year because of the whole drama around what was going on with OpenAI. And it's because we wanted to be part of this drama. We we couldn't imagine how this this great Sam Altman that everybody said was the Oppenheimer of our times, he lost his job probably for being a bit of an ass or being unregulatable um, by his own board. And we got so caught up in this drama. And then, you know, all 700 staff or 700 out of 770 staff threatened to quit, even though they'd only been working for the company for less than a year because they couldn't imagine not working for this godlike character, which is what Zuckerberg was like 15 years ago. And why do we think this story is going to end any differently?
3: One of my friends always says that if Facebook described accurately what you were doing when you, when you opened an account or uh, added a friend, you know, you're adding a line to a database, you're adding a line to a spreadsheet, you know, I mean, that people would react, think about it very differently than they do now.
1: Yeah, I know. And that's why I was listening to the, again, the, the previous podcast about the story of the internet and it's, You know, all the rights that we were fighting for in the 1990s and the free flow of data and protection of people within that environment, we didn't think we were doing it so that a Bezos and a Zuckerberg can be the the beneficiary of all that hard work. But that's what happened. It's... uh,
3: one of the things that we kind of overlooked you know i I think lena khan who is now the head of the ftc really made this point in the paper that made her name on amazon which is that because companies like ibm were dethroned by a couple of guys in a garage writing an operating system and because the resulting company microsoft was dethroned by a couple of guys in a garage writing writing a web browser writing a search engine you know and so forth there was this belief that that it didn't matter you didn't need to recognize regulate the competition of markets because something a new technology would come along built by a couple of guys in a garage and would upend whatever company seemed to be in charge and her point in the paper was that this is no longer possible because Amazon Google these companies have so much money that they can buy their startup competitors before they get get too far off the ground like facebook did with whatsapp and with um instagram
1: yeah and that's why we were proud like so we've been trying to get um competition regulators for a number of years to start paying attention to data as the competitive advantage and particularly in mergers to to ask to what degree is the accumulation of data part of the objective of domination and we've been fortunate to get some competition regulators to buy into that so much so that uh we managed to get the UK competition regulator to force the demerger of Facebook and Giphy. And we currently are, um, we tried the same thing with the EU regulator, well, the EU itself, when it came to Google buying Fitbit, we were arguing that they were ultimately buying the data um, and the future dominion over the data of Fitbit users. And while we were able to get an investigation to go to a really, really late stage, we didn't get the desirable out- uh, outcome, but now we're taking we involved in a similar level case at the EU around Amazon buying Roomba, the the vacuum, the um, yeah, essentially the um what's the name of the company? Sorry, I forget the name uh, of the company. Um iRobot. iRobot, that's it.
3: The, the um, one that I thought was really was really awful was I mean, you know, Facebook Facebook bought Instagram and lied, as far as I can tell, to the European you know, union investigators and said, Oh no, 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 we're never gonna link the databases. And then of course they have.
1: And they, the the this lesson from that came problem. from Google buying DoubleClick back. Yeah. In the oh God.
3: Yes. They we were also. So, yeah. We were all opposed to that.
1: Yeah. And so back. why do we why do we believe these people and why do they why do we think they can make these fake assurances that they'll go back upon? And it's because they have more lawyers.
2: Well, I mean, do we believe them? Uh, how widely believed are they at this point? I think there's a a bit of a backlash forming.
1: I I, I I yes, I want to believe that and um I do see it, but there's there's a backlash for me, and then you see how open AI has its moment of being the darling of everybody, and it's unthinkable that they could ever do something wrong. And like I remember post-9-11 the uh the working on these issues was hard and you'd get hate mail, but you'd also get far more love than hate mail until. The day we decided to say that um, Google was wrong uh, to accumulate um, Wi-Fi data as they were driving around the street view cars. Um, And we also said it was wrong around that exact same time that uh, Gmail should give you a gigabyte worth of data storage in exchange for being able to scan the content of your messages in order to give you advertisement. We got hate mail like you wouldn't believe. For daring to say something against Google, that like you say something bad about the Bush, Bush administration around uh, the response to 9/11, you get a little bit of hate mail. You go after Google. Oh my God! It was like the the floodgates had opened of, of hate mail, and you'd even find that um, we like to fund a, a charity that works on these issues. I have to work with foundations, like very rich institutions that give you money. Back then, if we were targeting Google, those foundations wouldn't talk to you because Google was on the side of angels. And this is, I'm a worried around this AI moment. There's this thing happening again, which is there are good companies and there are bad companies.
3: It's, we, Google, we, Google's, Google's uh, people have changed about Google though. Took, how long?
1: Yeah, how long and how much hate mail am I, I going to get apologies for? I,
3: I know, but you know, at google's 10th anniversary i was called into some radio show and i was asked you know will people ever hate google the way they hate microsoft and at the time it was quite reasonable to say well probably not because google brings you things that you want Whereas Microsoft crashes, Windows crashes, you know, and, and the, the user experience is really difficult. But that was before it became impossible to find what you were looking for on Google.
1: <laughs> that, that's the reason Google lost its halo, because its search engine basically started sucking.
2: Yeah, know, but now uh, they, they built in an AI and they'll tell you everything. They'll tell you more than you ever wanted to know about your search term. <laughs> Yeah, we have a technology that's uh,
0: gathering data that is very problematic and it's license plate reader technology i don't know if that's made it over into the uk but it's uh, actually a, a it, was invented,
3: it was invented here
0: Oh, that, in, in, the 1990s, a lot.
3: <laughs> in the 1990s i was taken on a press trip to a place called roke manor which is a research institution and they showed us the first the first the work they were doing on automatic number plate recognition and, yeah. then, and then the UK, then London installed it as part of the congestion charge. I think it was the first, wasn't that the first implementation in the world, Gus?
1: At that scale, yes. And now there's a national system in the UK that monitors license plates and number plates across the country. And it's actually run by the world's fourth largest defense firm. So it's uh, this isn't some gentle, you know, startup that's running the national surveillance system. It's uh, this is now the business of the defense industry, and it's not limited to the U.S. It's not limited to the U.K. There, it's spreading everywhere, um, and in the U.K., Wendy's right. The the history of it. Is predominantly around the London, the the congestion charging scheme for London, which is in order to get rid of the amount of traffic in London, they start uh, forcing people to pay five pounds a day, um, let's say seven dollars a day to fifteen dollars a day to, to drive into London. And what started as a very small central London experience quickly is expanded. That you know the entire region around London is now part of this surveillance system. And um, again, this all happened in the post 9-11 uh, era. And when we looked at the the legal regime around the collection of this data, we noticed that uh, there was a bit of an odd carve-out for this data, saying that some elements of data protection law doesn't apply to the data collected by this, this, this license plate, number plate recognition scheme. And we found out ultimately it's because all the data collected by this scheme in London was being sent to the U S to the U S government as well, which kind of blows my mind. Why would the U S government want access to all this data? And it's again, it's because this is just what they do. And so, so not only should you be worried about the fact that this is happening in the U S and this, that there's the collection of all this data, you should be asking, where's this data going next.
2: Into an AI into a, a learning module, no doubt. Um, and I, you know, kind AI is kind of feeling like a hula hoop in some respects because now every technology that's developed, every digital technology that's developed has some reference to AI because it's become sexy. It's like a marketing term. And it seems a little weird to me because I hear so many people who are deathly afraid of AI and they think it's actually a terrible thing that people are developing Skynet uh, which I mean you know which is absurd but that's what people believe and at the same time uh, companies are rushing to call things AI things that you know I mean I suspect there'll be a time when you have a you buy a rake at a hardware store and it's AI enabled
3: like like everything uh, everything was nanotechnology for a while
1: exactly your your vacuum cleaner is going to have has AI in it already for crying out loud yeah I know I know
2: but at the same time you have there is actually a, a difficult challenging sinister aspect to the AI thing and that is that AI can be used for surveillance and it can be used very effectively for for digesting uh unimaginable amounts of data and and deriving meaning from from that data uh, in such a way that it, you know, it could be immensely helpful, but it could also be uh, frighteningly malicious. Yeah. And I, I don't, I don't know the answer there because it, it ain't going away, right? It's almost like,
1: um, in order for it to work, you to build the world that people are trying to build, you have to destroy every safeguard we have. So I'll give you an example. Um, And this came to mind because I was listening to a podcast interviewing Mark Andreessen of Netscape fame. And now, you know, the Silicon Valley investor extraordinaire and the visionary extraordinaire that everybody loves. Um, And he's talking about AI and weaponry, and he's a huge fan of AI. He just wants to see AI um, ever. He doesn't want any controls over AI. He wants, because uh, he imagines, uh, like Wendy w- was using the the example of two guys in a garage. He wanted them inventing the next generation of AI. Um, and he was saying that in the future, we should uh, not only weaponize AI in the sense that uh, missiles should be equipped with AI. He said, we should only allow weapons that have AI to exist. And non-AI weapons should not, because he somehow believes that these weapons and with AI are better than humans who keep on making mistakes. And it takes me back to the, I don't know if you remember this story, in the days as um, the U.S. occupation of Afghanistan was ending uh, and the Taliban was taking over, the, um, the Americans were using drones quite a bit and remote control drones uh, to take out some in retaliation for some attacks and the new york times covered this one in detail where the u.s government uh sent a drone and targeted a guy who was driving near a u.s government building where um and they said in his in the trunk of his car he was carrying explosives and they killed him uh and destroyed the car only to find out that he was actually an aid worker um, and that's why he had a data profile that was very much like, I guess, a terrorist because he was driving around uh, U.S. Um, uh, government buildings because he was actually a driver that also did some work for U.S. Um, aid workers. And everything about his his targeting and 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 murder was data led. It was all because his mobile phone had been found at this location, and then it got found at that location, and therefore it's suspicious. And so. The, in the Mark Andreessen view of the world, that was a completely legitimate uh, exercise to take. It's, it's a data-led targeting of a human in a theater of war. Now, Mark Andreessen might say, "Actually, okay, well, no, the AI wouldn't have made that mistake. They would have had more data to have access to to, to corroborate. It would have had his identity somehow." And the answer is, well, if you believe in information theory, you, you'd, you'd think that there's a limit to what a system could actually know but not to these fanboys of AI who just think that the system will always know ultimately what it needs to. But in order for that to happen, you need to destroy every every floodgate that exists around the data fed into these systems in order to save the life of a guy who was targeted by a government uh, through a means of automation. it just it, It's a bit of, perver- of a perverse future. So yeah, you kind of need AI to recognize every human being on the planet. And let's not forget that Sam Altman the, the wonderful hero of AI right now. One of his side projects is that he's eye-scanning the planet. He's really? uh, he's behind WorldCoin, which is offering people oh, yeah. $40 to uh, show up at a silver orb in, in city uh, <laughs> centers across the world and have their eyes scanned to be given, uh, I think it's $40 worth of, of uh, cryptocurrency. And uh, it took... It was the Kenyan government uh, and the Kenyan data protection regulator to say, "No, you can't do this." And he's, in and, and Sam Altman's view, is like, "Oh, but I'm giving people, you know, control over their identity." And it's like, "No, you're feeding your systems, and you're claiming to give people cryptocurrency in order to help them." That's that's pretty gross.
3: You know, one of the things, one of the great myths that I think is is what's pushing all this is that more data is always going to be better data, and the security researcher john crowcroft and i collaborate every summer on silly paper for a silly conference called geeky and our paper this year was about the reality that what you get is poisoning and we have we have an example of it prior art in the form of google flu trends which which was this idea that you could you could see what people were searching for in terms of symptoms and you could predict where flu was happening but what but it didn't, what happened was in fact, people start start searching for flu symptoms for all sorts of reasons. And so it looked good at first and then the sort of model kind of collapsed. And that was what we ended up talking about with these large language models is that they're already, they're being used to generate web pages. So, and they're being, which are being fed back into the system. So basically what's happening is the AI is poisoning itself. Yeah. And we're not, you know, we're already less than six months after we wrote that, we're already seeing studies come out and say, well, actually, these large language models aren't working as well as they were a few months ago because they're being poisoned by their own, their, the text that they themselves have generated.
1: And this is when I, I feel really old, Wendy, because like, it's every few years we go through this incredible um, moment of, of optimism around data shall save us. And the Google Flu Trends—I remember that moment because that was when big data was starting to take off, and everybody was was referencing, "Oh, Google's going to save us because of Google Flu Trends." And I remember, the Economist uh, had a front-page article uh, around how um, data is going to save Africa from pandemics, and how—and um, you had telcos, telephone companies in Europe, who were fighting to become the next Google because they wanted to monetize their data, but they were being uh, fended off by, you know, ridiculous organizations like my own saying that they shouldn't be holding on to their data. So they were they were jumping on the bandwagon of, oh, but we can help Africa fight the next pandemic if we're allowed to mine this data. And so the, so the economist puts it on the front cover because Google flu trends. And this is all a repetition of what had happened, say six years before that, when Admiral Poindexter uh, comes up with the crazy idea that in order to fight uh, the war on terror, we need total information awareness in the U.S., where you can accumulate a lot of data and identify all the bad people. The, and- the
3: thing I hated most during the, um, the 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 mad more data is better data was the insistence that have if you had enough data, you no longer needed to show causality, and you didn't need to to you didn't need to pay any attention to traditional science and and forming a hypothesis and testing it because all you had to do was look at these giant piles of data and these patterns would emerge that no human would see otherwise yeah yeah
1: yeah we're doing it all over really
3: offensive
2: (laughs) (laughs) well the data is subject to decay and the AIs are subject to hallucination so uh, I'm not feeling a lot of confidence about the whole thing, um, so what what do you think, Gus? what are we gonna do about this? what is our like what are you actually are you actually working on AI today, particularly AI surveillance
1: well so um we're we're looking at AI in a number of levels, like for instance, we're looking at uh, where's automation uh, coming into the workplace? What are employers, how are they using AI to make decisions about employability? Uh, We're looking at the gig economy and the way that automated decision-making is affecting people's livelihoods or how creators are being affected by all of this. But we're also looking at AI and surveillance. And this is the one place where the, the tech bros admit that they're a little uncomfortable about the future. Uh, you know, as much as the Silicon Valley investors don't want any rules on AI, because for them, it would be communist to uh, to establish regulations, particularly because they say, oh, but China is going to be so much more powerful than us unless we focus on AI. They also say, but China is building AI to do surveillance and they don't complete the sentence for themselves. Like, are they building AI to conduct surveillance? And the answer is it's already happening. And as I said, there's the military, well, the the defense sector is already terribly interested with the accumulation of data, such as the running of automated uh, license plate and number plate recognition systems, and increasingly being used in domestic surveillance. But There's also this emerging defense tech industry coming out of Silicon Valley. You can say that's Palantir was one of the first of uh, of this generation of unicorns, of firms that do believe it's patriotic to build the type of technology that you would then sell to the Department of Defense, whereas Google previously would consider, or at least Google staff would consider this to be unthinkable. That's changing now. And the defense tech industry, you know, you have Andrew, who's uh, um, the, the the current one that everybody's excited about because they build surveillance systems that monitor borders, and uh, they build drones that monitor drones. We're seeing this this militarization of tech happen at the same time as AI is be is is terribly exciting, and that's not going to end well that is the one that we're focusing a lot of our energies on right now, trying to figure out how do you stop that? How do you stop the money from piling in to building that dystopia? While um, there's also money piling in to make sure that uh, only the right people get hired. Um, It's uh, it is, it it is, it is pretty dark and bleak out there when it comes to those aspects. Yeah.
3: That that again is one of those things that um, you know, I actually I have a question why are they all named after Tolkien
1: yeah I know it's
3: what is that
1: I I don't understand like Palantir is such a dumb name it's such a dumb name like I'm a huge Tolkien fan and I don't think they understand how dumb a name it is because yes it's these seeing balls uh, these orbs that can communicate at distance and whatnot but it was literally taken over by the great evil you know and so why would you try to name your company as a noble company say oh we do good in the world we're going to name ourselves after the tool that was used to create a perfect surveillance state within you know across middle earth by the big baddie i don't don't understand but yeah and same with andrew i blame sauron (laughs)
3: uh, (laughs) Well, the the thing I was going to say before that, actually, is that this is another fundamental characteristic of of computers, and it goes alongside the thing of it always being more expensive to curate and select and delete data, which is that it's always easier to build the system that surveils everything.
1: Yeah, but it also links to your other point, Wendy, that it's always going to be a little shit. It's always going to not be terribly good, and that's mm. why as much as these ideas return every five to six years, it's because they have to return because we kill them off. We're not that dumb as a society to allow these ideas to to take root, and when they do, it's it's only because they do it in the shadows. It's only because ATT and has a secret agreement with the uh, department uh, um, with the Department of Justice. It's only because. Uh, the intelligence agencies have secretly tapped into un- uh, um, undersea cables. They get away with it when they when they go beneath the radar until we are able to dig them out. But fundamentally, as a society, either we push back because uh, from time to time legislatures do do their jobs, or or the the courts do their jobs. But also, these systems fail. I, I, that's why we don't go around quoting 1984 anymore. It's not because the argument got less convincing. It's because we've used it so many times against a system that eventually got built and eventually had to get replaced. Like Kenya right now is building its third ID card system in the last six years. And I got tired of calling the, the, the current one or the previous one or the one before that a bad idea. It's like It's just governments have bad ideas. We just have to make sure they don't take root.
2: Well, on that optimistic note, we have reached the end of the hour, and I hate to stop now. I could go on like this for another couple of hours, but we just do an hour on our podcast. Maybe we ought to do one of those three-hour podcasts. What do you think?
3: You, you want to be provide Joe Rogan? the coffee. Yeah.
2: No, I don't want to be Joe Rogan. I don't need but a haircut that bad.
3: In some of those three-hour podcasts, he really does draw people out very well.
2: Yeah, yeah that's true.
3: The one well, maybe the we'll try on
2: one of these days. Ah, too much out. of a good thing.
3: <laughs> yeah, that's fair enough. And I'm just so glad to be here. I'm very If you're an insomniac, three-hour yeah. podcasts are great because by the time by the time they end, you actually really are asleep and you don't wake up when it stops talking.
1: Well, since you said you were glad to be here, does that mean that you would be happy to return? Well, if if look, I'm, I'm going to listen. I'm going to continue listening and. I, I saw the list of people. I've listened to a, to, um, a number of your interviews, and I'm just—I'm just—I'm honored to be here. Really am. Like, you, you interview fascinating people with fascinating stories, and if you're—if uh, if you think I have something more to say, I—oh God, I you count
0: yourself among the fascinating people because uh, we enjoyed having you here.
2: Yeah, this was a blast. Thanks so much. You can stay in touch with Plutopia
0: at Plutopia.io. On Facebook, look for at Plutopia News. On Twitter, it's at Plutopia. This is the Plutopia News Network, 20 minutes into the future.